Thank you guys for coming to our panel. It's probably a succession of panels for you today, so I hope you find this one interesting. We're going to keep it as open format as possible. If at any point when we're talking about something, if you have a point to make or have a question, go ahead, raise your hand. If it's appropriate to do so at that point, I'll get to you. If not, we're going to have about 15 minutes for questions at the end. I'm honoured to have such an incredible panel with me today. I'm going to get them to just run through who they are and what they do in a moment, although they need no introduction. A really amazing bunch of industry veterans here, so it should be a really interesting discussion. And we're going to address the issue of what other genres can learn from EDM. And I know I see a lot of faces in the crowd as well who are deeply embedded in the dance music industry and the tech industry, so I'd really appreciate your thoughts as well. Just a little bit about myself. I grew up dancing at the Hacienda in Manchester. I DJ. I was lucky enough to work at and Google um, for a long time in YouTube, working with their music and content owners. And then I left last year and co-founded DJC with Seth Goldstein. What's been really interesting for me about the, the dance music industry is just see the way it's exploded in America since I moved here. It's been really incredible seeing that industry surge and grow and really become absolutely ubiquitous and phenomenal. And I think a lot of that is down to how the artists and the people working in that industry have been very flexible with technology and about dealing with the fans. So we're going to basically just discuss like so much attention is given at the moment to the commercial success of dance music nowadays, especially in what is regarded as a very turbulent industry at the moment for musicians. So what's made it so prosperous, what are the success stories, and what can maybe other genres or musicians or companies learn from that and take away and adapt to their own environment. So without further ado, I want Josh and Philip and John just to introduce themselves and then we'll get kicked off. I'll start. Josh Gabriel. I bought my first synthesizer in 1981 and never looked back. Started a music remixing software company called Mixman and then in 2000 left to pursue music full time and I've been doing that ever since. Producer, DJ, you know, writer and just showing up at these guys' shows all the time. So, uh, yep. Philip Blaine, I've uh, been a festival and concert promoter for, uh, since 1990. I had my own company from 90 to 2001. One notable event we did was uh, Organic in 1996, where how me and John met. He represented the ski area. Snow Valley Ski Resort. Yeah. And we produced an event there with Chemical Brothers, The Orb, Orbital, Meepy Manifesto, and Underworld. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a pivotal event in electronic music for Southern California. And both the years before and after that, I was producing pretty much every electronic music artist that would come to Los Angeles. And as well as then dabble in doing, you know, raves where I was with a phone number and a map point and all that kind of stuff. Then I went over to uh, Coachella and helped out Coachella for nine years and then became director of festivals at Golden Voice and did other festivals like Rothbury and All Points West and uh, Stagecoach, etc. And then went to Insomniac with their exploding business three years ago to be their business development. And then now I'm independent working on some new projects and consulting many of those other festivals as well. My name is John Boyle. I'm the CFO and Chief Growth Officer of Insomniac. And it's, it's actually kind of interesting that I'm on this panel because I, I really don't have EDM cred. I come from the rock and roll world. My lone EDM stripe was producing Organic with Phil in 1996, but I had the good fortune of kind of falling into Insomniac about a year ago at a time when they needed to clean up the financial house and kind of prepare to go to the next level. And I'm consequently having my dance music epiphany on the job. As I've said before, you'll often find me out there in the middle of the crowd with the kids jumping up and down, loving every minute of it. Reminds me of 1991 when Nirvana and Pearl Jam used to come through town. It's a very, very similar euphoria. Like I said, my background is primarily in rock and roll and hip hop. I was a label exec at Giant Records, Virgin Records, Warner Brother Records. As a manager, managed Alien Ant Farm and Exhibit and some other rap, Black Alicious, who's actually here from the Bay Area. And then I, I sold my, I owned a tour called Snowcore, which was a rock and roll sponsorship tour that I sold in 2007. Went and got an MBA at Columbia, worked in venture capital for a few years, and then ended up here at Insomniac in the last year. So, and, and also last music tech conference, I sat in Alexis's chair and she was on panel that I moderated. So it's very nice to be on your panel, Alexis. Yeah, I think I prefer being a talker rather than moderator. I was like, oh, I've got so many questions to ask, but thank you. So. And I'm going to use the phrase EDM. I 
hate it, there's a lot of things, but if I keep saying electronic and dance music, we're gonna spend much more time saying that than we are actually ever discussing stuff. So um, I'm just gonna use it for ease of reference and make it quicker. So, I mean, the EDM scene has been around for years. This is nothing new. This is nothing, you know, that's suddenly exploded in the last two years, but it has got really, really big. It's survived for a long time. It is earning a lot of revenues for artists, producers, for events, for promoters. And I think a really easy place to start is something that we were discussing in the in the speakers room back end is the social aspect of dance music, as in their, their use of social media recently. And John said a very interesting thing. He said, well, it's actually a study in direct-to-fan itself. And this started way before there was social media, before there was Twitter or anything like that. So I think it would just be really interesting to get your guys' views on that as an artist, as someone who's been in rock, and as someone who runs one of some of the biggest dance festivals now. Yeah, I, I said that because when I was working in venture capital and looking at all sorts of music tech startups, like coming to this event and other events, and, and before the EDM craze totally took off here in America, and looking at these direct-to-fan platforms, people kept saying to me, yeah, it's kind of like what DJs used to do back in the day. And you know, now that I'm part of this and I see how Insomniac works, there's, there's absolutely no question that you know, dance music... By, by, as they say, you know, but by force, had to be direct to fan because there simply were no platforms to support it. And even the promoters, you know, they didn't have marketing budgets to take out ads or radio spots or anything like that. And so, you know, they had to create scavenger hunts and things that were really, really social in nature before, you know, technology enabled social in our back pocket. I think Phil can probably speak to a lot of this much, much more, but I mean, really, you can study the growth of dance music, and it's no coincidence that it correlates with the growth of social and all these enabling tools. You know, there is a study out there, I've referred to this a lot um, in the past, well, since it came out, a company called Ticketfly did an, uh, an infograph on uh, EDM ticket sales relative to other genres and six times as many more tickets are sold via social for EDM events than any other genre. I mean, it's, 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 it came out, they, they put this out in November and if you just Google Ticketfly EDM infograph, um, it's really, in fact, I probably should have had one ready here to, to show in, 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 on this panel, but I mean, it's really, it just kind of shows the power of social and, and, and again, direct to fan that that EDM represents. And I think what's interesting is like, um, I, I spend a lot of time with artists and these artists actually do a lot of their social themselves. It's not that they, they actually run their own Twitter. They do, they do their own social media. They like to do their own Facebook. It's not something that's particularly expensive or particularly, I mean, it, it can be as time consuming as you, you want or don't want, but they actually get to talk directly to fans. They get to interact with them. They get to decide whether to meet them. I think you were saying something really interesting before, just when you were saying, you, people can actually reach out and they'll be like, hey, yeah, come to my room and listen to this track. You know, as you know, I grew up listening to music in the 80s and, and my God, if I, if I could have actually interacted with the people's music that I loved, you know, you know talk to them, meet them, it, it would have really changed my musical direction. And uh, so as somebody on the other side, I pay extra attention to making sure to give people that time. We really do read people's emails and, 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 and respond and meet people on at, at shows. And, and, and it's, it, it creates a really unique bond. And uh, in, in America, especially, you know, before, before this big boom, there really was no, uh, no platform, like you were saying, for, for dance music because, uh, you know, the radio was divided up into, into uh, these different genres so that they could deliver demographics to, you know, for advertisers. And, and you know, in the, in the UK, you, you know, you had uh, radio that was based not on advertising, but based on providing, you know, entertainment slash education for for people and so there was there you know music crept in from all sorts of places and uh but so we've always had to rely on really just talking to people meeting people and uh you know one-on-one -on -one, one at a time you know when paul oakenfold started here in the you know when, when when he you know first started coming to america his 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 big thing was going to the small markets and playing them one at a time yeah. and just really just it was about exposing people because it was the only way to expose you know expose people to this music and that's changed obviously in the last few years but it, up until then it's been it's been a uh, a very different situation 
And I, I think what's like what I particularly love about the dance music industry and that the community is it is a true community. The the um, and maybe of necessity originally the um, you see a lot of artist-owned labels, which brings its own benefits because they can be way, way, more, way more flexible in what they're doing because they're not answerable to executives who maybe are fixed on sales revenues. You know, sales revenues wasn't really important to dance music artists as much as to other artists because they just cared about getting their stuff out there and they would perform. So I think Skrillex's mothership toured of 55 dates in two months. He played colleges, he played small towns, he, he wanted to get his stuff out there. And one of the things that I think is really pivotal for the dance music industry is because they, they're controlling their rights and because they're controlling the decisions they can make in respect of their rights and their assets, they can pivot much more quickly and they can decide to do things that are much more um, innovative in nature rather than having all this red tape around. Yeah, I'd even say that uh, EDM as a genre, since you know, it's part of the topic, is, uh, is it's in the historically from today backwards, it really did a lot for digital rights management um, and pushing, you know, from uh, Girl Talk and, and uh, Pretty Lights uh, giving away their music, it really kind of changed the whole dynamic of uh, the distribution of music and that really, uh, that really helped. Yeah, hi. Uh, just while we're on that same point, do you think that's something that other genres of music can definitely take away from? Because I know that, you know, Gareth Emery has Garuda and Armin has Armada, and those have, like you said, they've been really powerful forces because they can control so much they're not answering to anyone else. Would you suggest that to other artists, say, like in rock, to try and do that? I think that, from what I've seen, people need to either you have the ability now to reach a huge audience with the internet and it's all about making music that connects with people if you do that people will find their way to you and money can only bring you there faster but it comes at a, at a price like you say that you, you then lack flexibility to do what you want and so i think the preference is to to really to really put your stuff out there connect with the people that you want to connect with and then once that connection's made, people, you know, comedy has learned from it. You know, comedians are now not relying on, on, on companies. They're doing it themselves. They're releasing albums on their, on their websites, and, and they're doing a good job of it. That's and that's CK Lewis pay-per-view thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that we can all take a lesson from that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the if you look at a very traditional label relationship to a, to a band, for example, they needed help with marketing. They needed help with distribution. They needed help, you know, with recording stuff, all that is available out there for self-serve now, and it's about harnessing the power of the technologies that, that are available to allow you, again, I mean, jo Josh Bennett from Lesson 3, I was talking to him earlier, and he said, it's, he's like, this is my new thing, economics of ubiquity. You know, they put their stuff out there everywhere, and it actually gives you much more back, because it gives you an audience. And with the tools that are available nowadays, you can absolutely see who that audience is, where they're based, you can plan tours there, you can target these people, you can create special things for them. You look what the M machine just did for Metropolis. Not only is it a release of um, tracks, they've released a story behind it, and they've released artwork with it, and that makes it way more engaging for fans, and that's where you may get the additional money or they'll come to see your show. And the analytics will just help you do that. Once you build an audience, then you can build a revenue off the back of that, because when you know what your audience is, then you can start to talk to brands, or you can start to talk to promoters, and you can actually build revenue off the back of that. It's, it's hard to have, it's, it's hard to address your question without touching on the economics of. And you know, the economics of a band are very different than the economics of a DJ. And, and what are your goals? I mean, do you want to make a living? Do you want to get rich? This all plays into it. And you know, the economics, it, it is fundamentally easier for a DJ to take advantage of the tools out there, to own their rights, and to really build their cottage business relative to a four-person band who's got to divvy everything up by four. And, you know, and, and, and consequently, I think you, you're not, you know, again, depending on what people's resources are, what sort of backing they have, it's, 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 a, lot, it's a much more difficult decision for a band to say, should we take that publishing deal? because we need the money, because we gotta buy a van so we can tour, relative to a DJ who doesn't have to split the money four ways, needs a laptop and a USB drive, and can hit the road. Doesn't even need a tour manager, really. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's you know, can, can for, from a rights management perspective, is, is, are there lessons to be learned? Sure, there are, but, but you can't ignore economics when you're having, when you're having that comparison. 
And you, you'll see a lot of the, the dance music labels now, a label like Owlsler, for example, you know, Skrillex came from a punk background. Not all of the artists on his label are dance music focused. You know, he's got a, a lot of different genres on that label because he believes in nurturing and encouraging young musicians. Same with Steve Aoki. You know, he has a wide, wide, and I think that's what's, again, so unique about the, these kids have come from different kinds of music. And maybe, again, one of the really interesting things about dance music is it connects. One of the first things I noticed when I went to the Hacienda was I was like, oh my God, there are rich people, poor people, white people, Chinese people, all in one room, and no one's fighting. And this was Manchester in the 1980s. Like, this was really unusual. And I was like, and everyone's listening to this music. And it was just such a, a unifying experience. And I think it's, it, it embraces every single genre, which is what perhaps brings such a big community. But there are lots of labels out there who are doing good stuff, who are very forward thinking, who embrace lots of different genres of music as well. They're very open. They just want music to continue to grow and survive. Yeah, if you don't know, uh, Skrillex, uh, Sonny, he was in a band called From First to Last, which was, was an incredibly credible authentic hardcore band. I mean, these guys were the real deal. And, you know, he, he pivoted. Do, do, you think, do you think a lot of the way that sort of e, the EDM scene has really been able to capitalize on the growth in technology is down to the fact that a lot of them are engineers and nerds at heart, and they mm -hmm. have been sat in their bedrooms, they were gamers, and then they were like, oh, I really like that song, I'm gonna try and recreate that in Fruity Loops, which is what Portia Robinson did. Yeah, that's how he started doing stuff. Um, so they intrinsically understand and get, and they're not afraid of technology. And how does that translate to different genres? I, I think that um, one, one of the things that, uh, it's an interesting point, because the producer and the writer in dance music and electronic music are always assumed to be one and the same. No self-recycling dance music writer isn't also the producer of their own music, where that's not the same in any other genre. You know, most people that, you know, uh, make, a, make a rock album, a country album, or whatever, are usually, it's actually a benefit to have another producer, uh, you know, somebody that's well-known in the field and can bring something to the table, whereas the identity of a dance music artist is usually their production itself. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting point. Do, do you find the fact that the producers and the DJs team up in EDM to throw a party helps? Because in, in the rock scene, it seems like there's more gatekeepers. You know, you have a booking agent and he will do a show, you know, and he is going to try and get like basically the best deal for that club, which is going to screw the band. So they're going to get very little money at the same time. It's like they're not on the same team. So do you think that... EDM kind of grew differently because they were all forced to be on the same team and it just kind of grew that way? Or, or am I making, am I, am I just I think it's stupid? all supply and demand. It works itself out. I don't it? think it's really that different. I mean, there's yeah. still all, you know, the, maybe the management business is really not as advanced in the EDM compared to other genres, but, but it's definitely the same agents for the, for the most part. Yeah. Um, yeah, and definitely the same politics within agents. I think maybe what there's more experience about, like, though. Like smaller bands, like let's say you're an emerging band and you just booked your first national tour and you're playing, you know, there's five people in every room, you know, and you're not making it, uh, you know, that's gonna kill seven out of 10 bands, you know, and, and the, but in the electronic music, you don't really see some show where there's, you know, five people in the crowd, because um, they're all together. I, th they I think- They all seem to promote it better. One of the most interesting things that um, I learned on YouTube early on when we released the analytics tool to, to, to users was, we started seeing, and we really didn't expect this, and it was an incredible pivot, that labels and unsigned bands used the analytics tool to see where people were consuming their music. And they booked the tours based on that. So finally, they had the information so they wouldn't be like, well, why are we playing in Minnesota if no one listens to us there? Why aren't we playing in Indianapolis where we've had 3,000 views of our video? And so I think it's about using the information you can get to be more informed about that. I think, to your point before, with the producers and the, the artists working together, it's been such a DIY culture for so long, right back to three, you know, Spiral Tribe getting together as a bunch of DJs and deciding to run raves and handing out flyers and putting telephone in. You know, they, they ran that themselves. They understand what it's like to create those, those events and so to create the buzz around it. So it's, it's all about leveraging your, your fan base, finding out where they are, I think, and really getting the community excited about it. Do you, you know, the, most DJs come up through the ranks via what's called a soft ticket. So, you know, you get, you have a nightclub in a town, 
and maybe there's the headlining DJ, but then, you know, that young DJ gets a shot opening for that headlining DJ, and consequently, you don't have a lot of DJs playing to five people. Now, that happens in rock, too, but in rock, you also have that baby band that's going out and doing a hard ticket, which is where you find them playing in front of five people a night. So there's, there's the, the, the audience that's wanting to dance, you're gonna find those built in, willing to listen to a new DJ, much more so than the audience that wants to rock mm-hmm. that's going to listen to some unknown band. Mm-hmm. And I just want to make one other comment. You mentioned community, and up until, I mean, it's, it's my opinion, the dance music community was very, I don't know if isolated is the right, insulated was the right word. It wasn't, as a lifer in the traditional music business, it wasn't integrated at Mm -hmm. all. I mean, I thought I knew everybody in the music business and I got in the dance music world and I knew relatively nobody. And that, that that was a great thing for the dance music industry because it got to evolve and build on its own in a very authentic, credible way. Now that it's become mainstream and become the driver of pop culture, it's in a very good place because as it integrates with the traditional music business, it can cast away all the bad things from the traditional music business and take the good things from it as it becomes more sophisticated. And so it's, 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 it's really a great time. Hi. A lot of what I'm hearing is the reason that DJs and these young kids can go out there and become popular is that they can self-create and they can self-promote and, and they can get out there. What's to stop some whiz kid from starting something new in another genre? What are the obstacles that he faces today to make, let's say, a rock gig in his bedroom using just technology? Well, I think, you know, DIY for any genre is the way to go. You know, you really, if you put together something that's both talented musically as well as, I mean, I think the best way, I mean, from when when I've done other panels back a long time ago, like at CMJ and things like that, um, people would give you mixtapes all the time. And, and I would always tell people, look, you should try to go do it yourself. You know, really try to do something. Get a bunch of friends together, create a scene, create some type of thing. Because, you know, when I first started throwing events, when I was, I was doing 21 over clubs before I was even 21. And, um, and it was just the same thing that we would do like when we were in high school or we were in college. We'd get eight different kind of friends together that were from different walks and, and have each of those people try to get 20 plus people to come down and, and just build from there. And um, if you can get in, in, incorporate any type of art or interactive experiences or just some type of scene, um, yes, I think that's you know, the best way to do it yourself and build something from there. And I, th- I think it's becoming easier and easier. Like even as a traditional musician, if you if you're a kid in a band that plays a guitar and you're not particularly computer savvy, it's it's so easy now and it's so accessible to sign up and do a Ustream. You know, get get a Twitter account. It's not something that you have to educate yourself about <coughs> to a very deep level anymore. And also, like the the more conferences I go to or startup weekends I work with or you go to a hackathon like you know Andrew does with Spotify or. These are kids and they're 15 and 16 and they, they get it and they're excited about it. And it's all about, again, teaming up with your friends. If you look at Alza started, it was, you know, Clayton and Catherine from Biz 3 and then, you know, Tim Smith, Clayton Manager Son, and they were like, well, we're going to do our own label. We can do this ourselves. And it's, it's probably just about, um, just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's really scary. Like you think, oh my God, how can I do what Warner does or what Universal does? It's no longer about that model. Um, it's, it's just about, well, I'm not going to lose anything. So why don't I just try this and see what happens? I think it's getting easier and easier, and it's not as scary. You know, you, you don't have to be an excellent coder, or you might have a friend who's a great coder. If you look back at, and I really want to go on and talk about events in a minute as well, because I think that's a really important aspect of the industry that has really shone over the last couple of years. Even just throwing an event and getting your friends to come down and VJ. Like, you don't have to, like, you know, 20 years ago, we were all painting backdrops with a bit of chaos theory things on. <laughs> you know, thank God they've gone. But, you know, now it's all about video production and robots and, you know, lasers and stuff. And that, that thing isn't that hard to do if you're a kid with a computer and your friend's playing a small club. You can do a decent VJ set. So building that whole experience and getting people together will help you with that, I think is much, much easier now anyway. Um, but, like, yeah, let's talk about events. Um, it's... I think that going back again, you know, Skrillex hit those 55 dates on the, on the mothership tour. He went to the small colleges. He went to small cities where they wouldn't necessarily think that Skrillex would even come and play in that city. Uh, building up that community, building that passion. Um, what do you think is so 
special about EDM events that are drawing like the crowds that EDC are drawing, the 125,000 people a day? Well, you know, the, the main thing that I always saw from um, events that we started doing in the, in the early 90s and it's definitely becoming a lot more elevated to this day is that a more successful party or a more successful festival is when you really take away the, the rock typical thing of there's a stage, it's a rectangle, and the band surrounds themselves 100% by production and lights and sound, and they're playing from that line that is the front of the stage out to the audience. And really, you know, a good party, a good festival, whatever, should be more of a 360 degree experience and spend some money on some experience that's happening out in the crowd. I mean, the simplest thing in terms of rock world is jumping into the audience, you know, breaking that line of the front of the stage. And, um, and I think you see with, you know, Electric Daisy Carnival and, um, and even Coachella, because Coachella, you know, had um, a large scale installation uh, program very early on. And, uh, and that really brought a whole different type of environment and level of identity and personality for the festival uh, that people would go and they'd walk from one stage to the next and sometimes get lost in the middle of the do lab in the center of Coachella and forget to go see the band they wanted to see because they're hanging out dripping in some misting flower thing. And, <laughs> and, uh, and that's great. So, you know, and also when you look at Coachella and you have people who, you know, are dressing up more to be like a hipster. When at EDC, they're dressing to be crazy and wild and colorful, and it kind of breaks the social ice of that as well. So you have these elements from EDC, which is 500 plus dancers and performance artists, 18 large scale installation uh, pieces, 30 carnival rides, uh, and the people themselves dressing up so much. It, it creates such a more of a wild, fun experience and party. And um, so anything to, push those type of uh, entertainment factors to another genre, uh, not, not literally maybe, but um, that definitely helps. Yeah, yeah the, the energy, the energy has everything to do with it too. I mean, the, if, if, you, if you go to EDC and you're not feeling the energy, you're dead. And it doesn't matter, you know, what you ate, drank or anything else. It's just, it's just there and it's undeniable. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, I've said this before, but, you know, the early 90s, these shows had energy. Um, they didn't have the special effects, but they had energy. And so I think it comes back to right now in particular, what's driving pop culture um, and what's really the gateway for people when they go on a rite of passage. Um, there's an expectation that you are going to, there's an expectation of epicness. I know that's awesome. <laughs> that's a t-shirt. <laughs> um, uh, and um, you two guys beat on the same panel. And so you know, I mean, I think I think whenever you have that, if the show delivers, um, it's usually going to be something special. And uh, and and so you know, right now, um, dance music. I mean, it's pretty much you know, it's. It's, it is the new rock and roll. I don't think we've seen a genre that's impacted pop culture and youth. Um, I don't think we've seen anything like this since the late 60s, honestly. I don't think hip hop really has, has made the, the dent that this is making. And with that comes high expectations. And if the show delivers, that, that energy is gonna be there and it's just gonna be special. And I, I think what's interesting about it is, and this can probably relate to a lot of other genres now who are experiencing the adversity in different ways, I think the, the skills that the communities develop, the approaches, the techniques, the way that they just do stuff has grown out of adversity. It's grown through not being able to go through the traditional channels like you said before. I think with the bigger scale events, it's grown out of, you know, when there was a huge backlash against, you know, the problems with drugs. EDM events, you know, and then all the promoters were suddenly under extremely stringent requirements for, for security and for, you know, other things to actually get the permits to run these events. And Pascal said a great thing about that when he was asked, he's like, we create a wonderland. You don't need drugs to come to this and have a good time. Like we are creating a completely immersive visual experience. We're creating a day that you'll never forget. And I think just looking at where you're suffering and trying to, to get around that or pivot so you can actually create something that's so marvelous that people are gonna start talking about that and remembering that and linking it to very incredible experiences in your life is really key as well. And that I don't see in, in any other genre where people actually come together in a concert setting to meet people that they've 
that they've actually socialized with online, traded music with, and and learned from. And you know, you see these people sitting down, all you know, sitting down outside because you've provided spaces for them. You don't go to too many rock concerts where there's just space for people to sit and socialize with the people that they've you know. Yeah, there's met. lots of people who who you find um, who are meeting up at the bamboo art thing or the bumper cars. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. Yeah. I was just going to throw in there that um, I'm a DJ myself, and one of the coolest things about it is that you have the ability to interact and feedback in real time with your audience. So the traditional band models, you get up there, you have your set list, it's taped in front of you, right? You play your tunes. If you're a DJ and people want to hear you drop some nasty bass, you can do it, you know, or lighten up or back off a little bit, and that's just a really cool thing. Well, we were actually sat having the same discussion earlier. I was like, God, when I learned to DJ, I DJed vinyl. And I'm not a good DJ, by the way, so there are no expectations there. Um, but what you actually had to do was drag, you, you sort of planned your set, but you dragged all these crates there, and you actually had to, re- that was one of the hardest things for me to learn, was actually reading the audience to see whether what I was playing actually resonated with them. And I think dance music has become so big is because electronic artists know how to pull emotions of an audience using music like no other genre. I mean, I can feel I can feel great experience when I watch like the Black Keys or Kings of Leon or something like that, but these guys just like they manipulate your emotions in a set. I went to see Swedish House Mafia on Sunday, um, which was awesome. And I was with someone who'd been two days ago and he was like, oh my God, this is a completely different set two nights ago. And I was really surprised because of all the stuff. But he was like, this is just another experience all over again. And I think they still use that both in the production values and also in how, in how they play their live sets. It becomes such an emotional experience um, that you just want to go again and again and again to see these things. But you, you know who did that first? The Grateful Dead. There you go, so that we learned something from rock. <laughs> <laughs> they also grew their scene organically yeah. because they were so outside of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Actually, Charlie Parker did it before the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so actually, what, one of the things I, I was thinking about when I was thinking about Dogs and Acid was um, the, the sort of younger generation of fans. Um, it still astonishes me. Maybe it shouldn't, but like when someone finds out that I, um, I work with DJs, and they're like, oh my God, my daughter loves Skrillex. And I'm like, how old's your daughter? And they're like, she's seven. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, oh my God, that, that's incredible. And she's like, oh my God, yeah, she loves Bangarang. I don't know what it is, but she listens to it all the time. And I think one of the ways that the dance music scene has, again, it goes down to ubiquity. It's about getting your stuff out there on the internet because none of these kids can go to these events. They're too young, but the dance music community, again, because of the way they're able to pivot with their rights, can embrace these new technologies to get them out there. So, for example, what Josh and Lesson 3 are doing with Ultra, you know, they're live streaming the Ultra set. So anyone, anywhere in the world can watch the Ultra set. I can't even, as an ex-lawyer, I can't imagine the rights issues tied up with that and the performing rights issues, but they were able to do that with some of the world's top artists. I don't think you could do that in any other industry right now than the dance music industry who would be willing to be like, okay, yeah, let's live stream it all, let's do this, because they, they can sign off their rights very easily. And that, that's just an interesting aspect to me. Like, you have this whole community of people that aren't able to go to the events, which is their main revenue driver, but they're able to reach out and embrace those, and they're building a new army of fans who will then be saving up for Coachella, will be saving up for EDC, and just desperate to go there and experience it live. For a one-time broadcast of stream, I think it's actually not too difficult. Mm-mm. But it's the archive. It's archiving. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, the, the live live. If it's live live, it's, it's, it's yeah. a lot easier than if there's any archiving whatsoever. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, to, to your point, Alexis, I was um, a quick story. I was at Chicago for Lollapalooza, and I was on the side of the stage for Jack White, and Cascade was playing at the Perry's Tent. Perry's Tent is no longer a tent. It's a massive, massive LED production. And... Um, and I wanted to go see what that was like in Chicago, you know, on the coast. I mean, this has been true of anything, really. The coast kind of get things early and are kind of trendsetters, and everything moves to the middle of the country. And walking around the Cascade set, um, it, I felt like I was at a frat party because um, it was a bunch of bunch of guys in like jerseys and baseball hats backwards. And keep in mind, Lollapalooza, it's in Grant Park, it's all ages, and there's there's uh, public transportation, so every suburban kid within an hour, two hours of Chicago is there. And I walked around, this is like my little R&D, I walked around and I asked kids, you know, do you know who's playing? And eight out of 10 of them had no idea who was playing, you know. 
they're dancing their fannies off. You know, are you guys having a great time? Yeah, having the best time ever. You know, have you ever been to a dance event? No, never been to a dance event. Are you coming again? Yeah, for sure, you know. And so you could just see like, oh my God, all these kids are gonna go home and discover DJs and tell their friends and they're all gonna come back with a bunch more people. And that's, that's the energy I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it's, it's, I have a seven and 10 year old, uh, a 10 year old daughter and a seven year old son. And you know, my daughter listens to Kiss FM in LA, which is a top 40 station, half the tracks on top 40 are produced by Calvin Harris, mm -hmm. Dave Guetta, mm -hmm. one of the DJs. So, I mean, it's, it's just part of mainstream culture at this mm -hmm. point. Um, just kind of like flipping a little bit, you know, on the EDM side, on the EDM side, I see what happening, what's, what's happening is like a lot of DJs are not really innovating live. And when people start discovering music, they're like clever. Like, you know, when fans become clever, they start noticing things. And what I see at like Swedish House Mafia and like a lot of other shows is there's a lot of playing the set and not a lot of live shows, apart from like the visual productions. Like, how do you get DJs and producers to innovate at a live show rather than like feeding the audience? And because I see a lot of that happening these days. It's fair. I've, I've got a comment on that just okay. personally. Yeah. So I think I think a lot of it, and I, I get I get a bit spiky when people like, I, get, I get a bit angry for the artists. I know when people make comments like that because depending on what they do, and a lot of music producers now do live shows because I mean they're not DJs. They never really want to be DJs, but live shows is great to get their music across to the fans. It's great to connect with their fans, and it's where the revenues are coming in. So they want to go there and they want to perform their music and other people's music that they like to play. It's really hard, depending on what they're using, whether they're using Traxxor or Serato or CDJs or Ableton or whatever. Unless you really understand what goes into that back end and putting a set like that together, then it's hard to understand the skills involved. So, for example, Madion, who uses the launch pads a lot, now has, he has three launch pads when he performs. One's two are for audio, one's for video, and he's doing all that live. And he actually has them slanted now towards the audience so they can see him doing it because no one believed he did it otherwise. He's like, now I play like that so people can see it because then they get what I'm doing. And so um, I think a lot of it is about education so people understand what, it, what, what they're doing. Um, but also when you're putting on a massive production like that and there are spaceships going up and down, and robots everywhere, and you know, people are shooting out of cannons, there has to be a certain amount of sync and timing for that. Yeah, and it really just depends on, on each artist. And then mm -hmm. there's, you know, from the band, they guess they can play anything, but then also someone mentioned about the song list that's taped right in front of them. They usually stick to that, um, and then you know there's there's other you know artists like uh, what was Alex Patterson from the Orb. He mm -hmm. actually wanted to have all the tracks going live into this huge soundboard so that he could actually do a totally unique mix every time that he performed. Uh -huh. um, to even just for DJs, we put security cameras right on top of the deck so people could actually see their hands on the vinyl uh, and how they're actually mixed because it's true you know when you get to be more of a fan you start to get to understand the nuances uh, for each artist whether it be a DJ mm -hmm. or producer or you know knob tweaker button pusher you know but uh, <laughs> it, it is just different and uh, some artists may not put too much originality from one show to the next but it's really on a case-by-case case. I think also um you know, you're focusing on the actual live element, but uh, you know, as my, myself, you know, I do this all the time, and uh, a lot goes into the preparation. So, um, you know, every hotel room I stay at is the beginning of a new bootleg, a new mashup, a new a new song, and 98% of what you'll hear, nobody can purchase anywhere. You know, it, it's not you can't buy the music that we're working with because we're taking things from all over the place, and so we're create we're spending a lot of time and energy creating something. Um, and these essentially are blocks that you know can be moved around, you know. But the act, you know, the, the granularity may not be the same as a live show, but also the the range of of emotions that you can create is different than with a live show. Um, you'll never get somebody with a guitar, bass, and drums to perform exactly something that happened 30 years ago. It will, it, you know what I mean. Whereas I can sample something and give you the feeling of something over something else. It's just it's it's different tools, different things for different situations, and. Uh, um, you know, when I was using Ableton in the beginning, you know, I was one of the first people to start DJing with Ableton, and 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 in England we would get you know you know people throwing beers, you know, saying what the <laughs> hell are you doing up there? And at the end of the day, I, I didn't really really care because what what my job is is to give somebody an emotional experience, and it really the the tools they're using are to me are irrelevant, and and what the experience is is what is 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 is, is what you're giving people, and whether it's live or not. 
It's, a, it's about the experience. And, and Josh had that just um, early on, and I know this because I'm a bit of a nerd about Josh, is um, he created something with uh, the Atari 1040 ST. And the way I said it was like, didn't you do something that used to shoot lasers and stuff? <laughs> like way back in the day. And j just explain what exactly what it did. This is, uh, in 1988, I, uh, I was going to school in Holland and um, I made this thing that was, you know, eight light beams coming from the ceiling and this was connected to a computer and, uh, you know, a sampler and each, each light beam would control a different track of audio. And it w I would, you know, this was done in dance clubs in, in, in Amsterdam and, and uh, you know, it was kind of, thinking back, it was crazy. There would be an acid house night going on and, and then they would stop the music and I would go on and do my thing for half an hour. And at the end of the night, it, it was a little early on, so people just thought I was moving my hands to the, moving my, you know, my hands in the lights to the music as opposed <laughs> to the music being created by what I was doing. So I, it's all in the mind of the, you know, in, in, in the listener in terms of what's really going on. And I think the point is like creating that experience and it, everyone does it like we referenced the Grateful Dead before. Remember, I remember when the Beastie Boys first came to the UK in like 85 and they brought those girls in cages with Budweiser bikinis. People were outraged. I can remember my mum banning me from she's like no they have naked strippers in cages you're not going there. And of course I went but I didn't tell her. I told her I was going to see the Backstreet Boys or something. Um, you know we got a Oh, okay. And then you've got, um, you know, Skrillex with the spaceship. You've got, you know, pe people who um, just do crazy things with their music. And um, I saw Demo speak at the, the, the Future Music Billboard Conference um, last, last year. And people was like, you know, what's your secret? Why are you so popular? And he's like, I don't know. I just do crazy shit and people like it. Just try different stuff. He's like, I got drunk one night and made a Facebook page for my cat. I woke up in the morning and I was like, what did I, oh my God. And there were 10,000 likes. He's like, <laughs> I didn't know that people would like my cut on Facebook. He's just like, just try different stuff because you'll start to engage with your fans and understand and learn about them. And I think that applies across anything. Sorry, you had a question. In fact, we're probably open for questions now anyway because we have 15 minutes left, right? Uh, yeah, so anyway, I just wanted to relate to what you said earlier, John, about um, you were walking around at Lollapalooza and you saw the bros with their hats on backwards and they had no idea what the hell they were doing. There were girls to. too, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, you make good news. But anyway, so um, how much do you see the aesthetic taking over versus the music? as the genre gets more popular. Because I, I went to Ultra last year, and I went to the Carl Cox tent, and it was ridiculous. It was just like an EDM universe in itself. And, um, you know, of course I knew who Carl Cox was because I followed the genre, but I feel like other people would say, oh, that's just a guy up there doing his thing. But I'm more entertained by the lights and the music together versus just like the talent itself. Um, well, I mean, look, if, if, um, if people are turned on to it because of the production and energy and they're not grasping onto the music and they become fans, ultimately they'll spend time with the music. And, you know, I mean, while it may seem on the surface that every DJ, you know, in its particular subgenre sounds the same, they're not. And, 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 you know, there's different structure, there's different sounds, there's different nuance. And, you know, it's no different than a metal kid going to a thrash show and having the time of his life in a mosh pit, um, he's, not really pro he's not really processing the nuance of the music, right? He goes back and then, wow, I had a great time. And he pulls up this artist and, you know, so, so really it's the beginning of the discovery process. And discovery is easier and easier now because of music tech SF, because of technology you now. Those kids can be in there. They can use Shazam. They can, you know, they can be like, oh, I've got no idea what this is or who this is, but I'm going to like figure out what that track is. And it will be an emotional connection for them to that experience. So they will listen to it again and again. And it's easier for them to remember that because of all this technology that, that's allowed them to do that rather than just go and be like, that was really good, but I don't know what it was. It was like, or you walk up to a DJ and you're like, can you play that one that goes da 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 da? And they're like, oh, I've got no idea what that is. Now you can be like, oh, it's going to be interesting, and, and, and I, I think we're going to see like a, an evolution of creativity with DJs um, in terms of uh, even more styles coming out, um, integrating with different types of performers and music. Like I just, there's so much, there's so much room mm -hmm. for growth and evolution in the scene, and I think we're going to start seeing some pretty incredible performance. Um, performances and also just some incredible music being made. I think I think we're really at the beginning of what what's like from from, from a pure repertoire perspective. I think we're at the beginning of of some pretty cool stuff. Mm -hmm.
I'm just actually wondering if you guys could talk about um, what the EDM genre as a whole kind of needs to do to stay relevant now this sort of reached the mainstream. Because I think that if you look at the narrative arc of you know rock and hip hop, they all kind of had a period period of relative obscurity, and then sort of reaching the mainstream, and then for one reason or another, kind of fading into obscurity. So, what is first of all, I guess, the EDM genre poised differently and possibly able to avoid that, or what specifically needs to be done to sort of make sure that EDM continues to be this big thing, you know, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years into the future. Well, you know, I really just hope that, you know, all the, the stakeholders or artists or and people involved really want to, you know, maintain evolution and innovation as much as possible. And I think that's really what's going to, um, uh, you know, continue out there. I mean, there's all sorts of different memes I'm seeing on YouTube. Uh, um, fun, creative stuff is going to always really find success for us. Um, and I think there's other parts of the industry from like there's a lot of people getting into the festival business right now and I just hope that those newcomers to the festival business are you know maintaining safe environments because you know when a, an event goes bad that can actually be bad for the entire industry I think the community will protect itself like this isn't something that's just suddenly gone and appeared like this is this is a, this I'm glad you're bringing that up right yeah the community will protect itself uh huh Music Institute by uh, Kevin Saunderson, Derek May, and Juan Atkins in 1981. Exactly, it's been and, around for years and years. Yeah, and uh, 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 so the genre has been around for a long time. And yep. watching guys like Daniel Miller come there and play homage to it, and well, actually uh, seeing Phil and, and John produce gigs, you know uh, what? Organic. Uh, well, Kingfish. I want to uh, see where's he? Yes. His very first electronic gig and and you know Divine Playground. Oh, uh, Oakenfold's got to be my age now. I mean, it's you know, it's this stuff has been there forever and ever. Just like Curtis Blow was around in 1977. So, and one of yeah. the unique things I see about this community is these artists—they're making a lot of money. They're absolutely reinvesting it back into the community because they believe in it, they've grown up with it, and they're very protective of it. Like, I would not like to be someone who's coming into this community right now purely to jump on the bandwagon and make money out of it because you're not going to get anywhere. Because these these artists, they control their rights, they know their community, they know how to make money, they can do this themselves, and they want this community to sustain because they're passionate about it and they believe in it. And I think it goes back to a point you said, John, before, you know, it's, it's such a creative community. They work across the board with different genres. They're deeply, deeply educated about music and technology. Like they, they're actually sitting down creating music from scratch, creating sounds from scratch. And that's just not gonna go away because they're gonna continue to push the barriers, push the forefronts, do new collaborations, but also sink money back into the industry. Hi. Hello? Hello? Um, I'm just building on what he said. Do you think that um, possibly the rapid evolution of the tooling and the technology, you know, we're at the right time where, you know, it's changing so quick even now and the genres are all mixing together and it's getting horizontal and to the point that you brought up, um, they're bringing in other genres outside of electronica. Is that going to help them stay relevant as we move forward into the future? I mean... I think what we're talking about, I think what you, you hinted at earlier is with the Carl Cox comment is, you know, dance music started a long time ago and, you know, it really started, you know, back in the disco days and then, you know, they sort of got bored of all the records they had and started using drum machines and, you know, you know if, you, if, if you haven't read it, you know, the last night a DJ saved my life is a nice history lesson. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, the, these genres that sort of grew out of this or organic, uh, you know, dance music industry that wasn't, you know, mainstream has a lot of really dedicated <laughs> followers. And, um, and, and now that things have exploded, I mean, this is really the second time it sort of happened in the U.S. You know, the first time was when they signed the Chemical Brothers and, you know, Prodigy. It, you know it was like, oh, everything's going to go electronic. And then it went, you know, nothing happened. And uh, I think that's because that music didn't connect with people on the same level that the music is connecting with people now. And, uh, you know, we just have to see where it goes. But when I go to these, when I go to these bigger events, the last time when I was at EDC last time, the, the the distinct feeling I had going into like the techno room was like, there's still today people 
practicing the art of being a bebop jazz band and their and and baroque flute and they will be 3000 years from now there will still be block flute orchestras they won't be huge and but they'll st- there's always people that stay around to keep genres alive but what's happening is those genres are still there but now there's you know 100 times more people listening to this music that's the pop music because you can't help it. That, that's, that's what people are listening to because that's what they have access to. And once people, the other thing that we, that we didn't really talk about was the fact that in America, if you want to see you know, music and hear it on a loud system, you had to be 21. And now for the first time in a long time, you could be 18 mm-hmm. or even less. All of a sudden you've opened the worlds, the minds of these people at a much younger age. So that's why you know, there's this big boom, and I think what will happen in the next few years, people will sort themselves out. They'll, they'll you know, I don't like that anymore. That's cheesy. And, and they'll, 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 people grow. That's what happens in dance music is you start one place, and you learn. Your, as, you, as your ear gets more educated, you, you, you start to, uh, to, to discern what's you know, quality from, from, from BS. And I think that that's what will happen. It will be a natural process, as, as all music is. The inter- you, know, uh, you, know, you don't have... Uh, development dollars for bands anymore that's the internet you know people wait and see oh well that's going well i'll take that and i'll take one of those and i'll take one of those and they put it on and and uh um it's up to you now to 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 make that happen for yourself and then and then uh, you know the shows will follow and you see a lot of artists actually performing under different genres with different names it's the same guy you know clockwork and rl grime yeah same person two two names different genres um like when I, I went to my first trap show um, and if you'd asked me what trap was 12 months ago, I'd have been like, there's an Austrian group of family DJs. That's really strange. Are they, are they persecuted by the Nazis? And I was just, I had a Hacienda moment and I was like, oh my God, this is a completely different crowd that I'm used to seeing. It wasn't even a bro crowd. There wasn't all the like, sadly, you know, I like bro. It wasn't all the neon tank tops and cats back to front. This was like a really deeply urban crowd. And I was like, I haven't seen this at pop scene for a long time. This is really interesting, the demographic. And I just think it it brings more people into the fold who then will maybe go to an event and to see one particular DJ that's one, or one particular artist that's one style of music and will happen to go and see Excision by mistake or, you know, they catch a Skrillex set and he, start, he starts dropping reggae into his set. You know, it blew my mind when he dropped Tarantula into his ultra set. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Because they're so knowledgeable about music and they're so ready to embrace different genres I just think it will it will continue to grow the community the fan community as well as the artist community you know one, one more point is is the um, the leaders the, the business leaders of the space Pasquale the guys from IDT the guys from ultra these are young men I mean on the high end these guys are 40 years old if that and you know they were doing these gigs when Phil was, I mean, Phil's an OG, you know, back in, in, from the illegal warehouse days, right? And so they've seen it, they've lived it, like genuinely lived it from the time when it was full underground to what it is now. And they care about this legacy. Mm-hmm. Pasquale, I mean, Pasquale reads every single tweet, every single Facebook post. That guy is more in touch with his fans the fans of Insomniac than any artist I've ever worked with in my career. And that says something. Um, so I, I think that there's a real, the, 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 the leaders of the space are very motivated and incentivized to keep it relevant for a long time. Any other questions? If not, you're all free to go for your break. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming, guys. It was awesome.